Hi, uh, welcome to the new voting project. My name is Kanal, your host, still your host. <laughs> and today we're here with Helen Butler, um, the executive director at Coalition for the People's Agenda, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization comprised of representatives from the human rights, civil rights, environmental, labor, women, young professionals, I guess people like me now, elected officials, peace and justice groups throughout the state of Georgia um, and some other southeastern states. Um, you've also amassed a multitude of awards that would take the entirety of this interview to go over. Um, so it's an understatement to have you here. Thank you so much for your time. I understand you're extremely busy um, and actually traveling right now. So thank you. We do appreciate it. Well, thank you, Kanal. I'm really happy to be here with you. Uh, excited to always learn from young people. You know, I like working with young people. Well, well, we appreciate your, your generosity. Um, so yeah, let's dive into these questions. Uh, just for the viewers, um, talk a little bit about your background. Um, you know, how'd you get into this? What drove you? Um, and, and touch upon if you think college prepared you for the responsibilities you have today. Well, let's see, how did I get started? I'm from a small town, so you know, and I went to this huge university. Uh, but while at the University of Georgia is where I went to school, I was one of the first 50 Blacks to attend that school at the Hamilton and Charlene uh, integrated it. So um, that was a, an adventure for me because in itself, that was an advocacy statement. That was a statement of doing something for my community, making a difference uh, where we hadn't been allowed to be there because of our skin color. I was able to attend, uh, able to graduate. So while there, I did a lot of activities um, with the Blacks on campus because uh, there weren't a lot of things that we could integrate into while we were there at the school. So we started our own Black Student Union. Uh, we did, uh, I was one of the founding members of the first Black sorority on campus because we couldn't pledge the other sororities. So I was always making a difference uh, for paving the way, I guess you would say, changing the policies or doing things differently that would allow people like me to be engaged in college life. Uh, while there, I also went to graduate school. And while in graduate school, I worked in a community organization, a nonprofit organization. And there was this lady, Mrs. Melissa Tate there, who was a community activist who was well known. When she spoke, you know, people listened. Uh, she advocated fully for children, uh, for making sure uh, black children in the neighborhood and in Athens, Georgia, were able to have quality kind of education. So she, along with Dr. Levine and the School of Social Work, who was on their board, I worked with them a lot in, in getting things done for uh, daycare centers and Head Start programs in the Athens community to give them educational opportunity. 
while at Georgia, I also did a lot of direct action. Uh, we did a lot of things to change the way things were on campus. We didn't have black professors. So we wanted black professors, those kinds of things, uh, blacks on, on the football teams and all of that. So, you know, uh, Hosea Williams came down to University of Georgia because of some issues that were going on, not only at UGA, but in the city of Athens with regards to discrimination against Blacks. So we did a march. <laughs> I mean, I participated in direct action. So I guess it really prepared me. While it prepared me for a career in corporate America, I also got the other side of the equation looking at public policy. Now, young as I was at that time, I didn't see the connection as I see it now. And so once I completed my career in corporate America, I came back to work at the NAACP uh, state conference when my brother was president for 12 years. So that gave me the opportunity to do again, get engaged in making a difference for the community, dealing with public policy, getting to change public policy, and making sure our communities were active and participating in that. So I guess college did prepare me in some form of fashion uh, for what I do now. Well, that's great to hear. I guess uh, activism runs in the family then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's great. I'm the lone, you know, soldier, I guess, or warrior in my family. Everybody in my family really? is STEM. You know, they're all biologists and scientists <laughs> or something, yeah. Great. Um, anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, my brother was the first elected county commissioner in the county where I live now, Morgan County. He was that a county commissioner for 25 years before he died. Uh, and he was the state conference president of the NAACP um, for uh, 12 years. And then he also worked for AT&T Corporation. So all of that together. So I guess it was in the family, but he and I were particularly the only ones that really got engaged in a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Um, and I guess a following question to that is now, um, you know, as director of your organization, um, why focus so heavily on, on voting rights, you know, in an age where everything is supposed to be universal, everything is supposed to be free, you know, I say that in air quotes, why, why focus on voting rights? And, and we'll follow this up later in the interview. Right. Well, you know, this organization was founded by the Dean of the Civil Rights Movement, Dr. Joseph Eccles Lowry. And he, along with Dr. King, so many of the John Lewis, C.T. Vivian, Dr. C.T. Vivian, uh, Andrew Young, Rita Samuels, a lot of people you may not even know, right. uh, Coretta Scott King, all of those people were, I guess, put their lives on the line for voting rights. They made it possible that we would have, Black people especially, would have the opportunity to exercise our right to vote, to choose people that would represent us and have people look like us as our representatives. So it was 
when I met them and I joined the People's Agenda after I left the NAACP Voter Fund, I joined the People's Agenda uh, by meeting Dr. Lowry. They had this Tuesday weekly meeting where all of their member organizations and individuals would come together, work on issues uh, that were happening in the community together. So I joined with Reverend Orange. James Orange, of course, was one of Dr. King's lieutenants in the civil rights movement. So, and he also worked in labor. Uh, so it was an opportunity that I got to meet with all of these great legends, but understanding that they gave so much for us to have the right to vote. And voting is connected to everything we do. I mean, public policy impacts you from the day you're born to the day you die. So you gotta be engaged in voting because an elected official makes that public policy. And if you don't have the right one, you get voter suppression, Jim Crow 2.0 like we do now. Right. So that, that's why voting is critical to me because they gave their lives for it. Uh, I can at least give my service as a part of that to protect the right to vote. Right, yeah, that's, that's inspiring. <laughs> I don't know, I don't got nothing else. Um, and I guess as, as part of the coalition for the people's agenda, um, what are some of the core values and policy objectives that the organization as a whole is trying to amplify or to direct light onto, you know, what beyond just voting rights, what, what is it that the coalition hopes to accomplish? Well, there, we want to improve governance for our people. We want our people to have equal access, equity, to be able to enjoy all of the benefits that others in the United States are able to enjoy. Um, we do a lot around criminal justice reform. A lot of our people are impacted uh, by the criminal justice system. So we work around criminal justice reform. Uh, in fact, uh, we have a committee each year, uh, we, within the organization, we have committees that concentrate on certain issue platforms that we deal with. Our criminal justice committee really did this wonderful paper using the thing uh, that Dr. King said, where do we go to from here? Uh, you know, looking at criminal justice reform, how do we make it better? How do we make it so that it works for our community and not that we're always adversely impacted by it, but we can uh, use that system better for our community's safety, but rather than being racially profiled or killed as George Floyd was and so many others were. So how do we get those policies changed? So we've been working on getting citizen review boards established at loca local cities mm -hmm. in Georgia. Uh, we were able to get that through Mayor Franklin when she was mayor of the city of Atlanta. It's an independent agency that reviews the activities of the police department, with, especially with regards to uh, when they um, interact adversely to the community. 
So they get to review it. They have subpoena power to do investigation, to hold people accountable. So it's those kinds of policies that we're trying to get implemented otherwise. We do education. That's my number one uh, issue if, you had to, if I had to choose one. I want Black children and children of color to have equal, um, not necessarily equal, but equity in their education. I want the resources that are put into educational systems equitably distributed. Not that the north side of Atlanta gets better schools than the south side of Atlanta where people of color live. I want them to have that opportunity. I want us to be able to have uh, diverse teachers, to have diverse administrators, to really have good resources that will help our children really succeed and compete, not just in the US, but globally. So education is one of our values that we look at. Uh, the other is economic empowerment, or economic justice. Um, Dr. King's last pillow that he was working on was economic justice with the Poor People's Campaign. Yeah. How do you change that? How do you get a minimum wage? How do I get access to contracts in the state just like other businesses do? How do we get to have equality in terms of uh, economics? I mean, if you look at a community, you've got to have an economic base. We spend a lot of money, but it doesn't, isn't spent in our communities. How can we bring it back to our community to make it better, uh, to make it grow and thrive for children, our children? and not that we have to always live in poverty and be impacted. And I guess the other is environment and health. If you take a look at the environment from itself, from an equity standpoint of health issues, we've got to protect mother earth, right? right. Uh, to be able to really live on this world water we got to have clean water uh we don't need our communities filled with um waste facilities or nuclear reactors always built in our communities so we want our environment to be sustain sustainable but good for our health purposes we have our health disparities are just <laughs> astronomical in terms of what is impacting, how it impacts us. So we look at the environment. So those are the main four, I would say, mm -hmm. that we deal with. And we connect all of those issues to voting, voting. because yeah. everything I've talked about is impacted by some elected official that makes a law about that issue. Right, yeah, I, I, I concur. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's very clear that the organization has a holistic approach to reform. Um, and yeah, at the center of it is voting, but we'll, we'll get back to that. Okay. Don't worry. Um, I guess I want to circle back to last year, um, 2020, you know, uh, 
it's, it was pandemonium, some would describe it, once in a century pandemic, um, hyper-polarized elections, um, you know, some could argue mass corruption. Um, what, you know, walk me through your thoughts on the 2020 election, what you observe, having been doing this for, for so much longer than me, <laughs> you know, let me know, what, what do you think? Well, doing this for decades, I have to say 2020 was the worst election cycle I had ever been exposed to. Number one, we had COVID, right? Uh, we normally, the way we get people engaged in the process is we touch them, we go out and meet with them, we have this face-to-face -face confrontation, uh, you know, coming together, right. they trust us as trusted messengers. So we're out in the community working with them, but with COVID, we had to really pivot to do other things to even be able to communicate. We had to do use a lot of social media. And of course you all are really good at that, I'm not, but I have some young people on my staff that really know all the TikTok, the Instagram, yeah. the Twitter, uh, the LinkedIn, you name it, okay? Whatever new you all come up with, right. uh, they are on top of it. So they have to train us old people on how to do that. But, it, but that made us have to use different kinds of forms uh, uh, to really reach people. We did a lot of phone banking. We did a lot of texting. We did a lot of Zoom meetings. I was on Zoom from 8 a.m. in the morning to 8.30 or 9 or 10 at night doing town hall meetings or doing meetings to explain why it was important. And on top of COVID, here again, and we had to try to be safe. How do we navigate that safely with our canvassers and with the people that work with us, we had to also deal with, we had new voting machines, right? That we had never used before. It had a paper trail. You had to scan it. That was a new way of doing it. Our old direct recording machines, at least they had gotten used to those where you just go in, insert your card and make your selection look at it, review it, and, you know, push the button to release it, and you're done. You didn't see anything else, but now you had this piece of paper that you had to scan. You had to take it out, look at it, scan it, and make sure that it scanned and drop it in into the bin. So it was a new process for voters. First time we are implementing it. And then, of course, uh, no one could do a whole lot with voting because um, the Secretary of State kept changing dates. Right. Uh, first, it was going to be a presidential preference primary in March. It got changed to June. Then it got changed again. It's those kinds of things that created havoc. I feel like the Secretary created. of State in Georgia really needs, you know, a nice cleansing um, but we can get to that a little later. Do continue. Do continue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, you know, he did do some good things. I have to give him credit what credit is due. Okay. Yeah. The number one good thing he did was mail out 6.5 uh, million 
absentee ballot applications, right, to every voter. That's what got him in trouble with his uh, party, let's say. Yeah. But it was a good thing because it that also gave people of color another means of voting that we had never used. We had used it, but we had never used it at the levels that we did in 2020. Uh, so mailing those absentee ballots. Now, the bad thing about that process, he used an out-of-state vendor in Arizona where they had to go and then come back to Georgia, which uh, created problems with people not being able to know whether they got them or not. And they kept sending in additional ones. And that created work on your election workers and all of that. Right. And then the election workers didn't show up because they, they were cold. They were concerned about COVID. The average age of a poll worker is over 70. So, you know, you have I'm a poll to... worker. I have <laughs> well, 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 look, the average age now, I said, okay? So that means a lot of us are really, it's really not 70, it's 65, but you know, a lot of us are older age. So right. yeah, we did a recruitment process for poll workers. We actually recruited over 700, almost 800 poll workers that we wow. saw the need that the election offices would need new people. So we recruited poll workers. Uh, we actually trained our poll workers before they went to get tr the actual training with the state because we wanted them to understand what it means to be a poll worker, what, what, what does the voters, how do they voters see it and get them to see from the voters perspective. So even though you're learning the technical aspects from the Secretary of State or from your local board of election, there's a human customer side of it. How do you look at it from the customer side? And so, and of course, we always told them that the whatever training they were told at the uh, local board of election is the way you go. But in your mind, remember that you are trying to give the voter the best experience they can have in life. And so, and to keep them engaged in the process. So we did that, we recruited 800 uh, poll monitors that we put on our election protection team to go out and assist voters so that they would actually be able to vote without problems if they had problems like the polling location didn't open on time, they didn't have enough ballot, emergency ballots if the machines didn't scan. Um, we had a toll-free number but our people were there to help them on site so they wouldn't get discouraged and leave. A lot of the organizations that we work with also were there to provide food, water for people that were standing in line for nine hours, six hours uh, to exercise their right to vote. But I think the best part I can say about the 2020 election experience was COVID helped people understand why it's important to have the right elected officials in office. 
if you looked at whether you're going to get your unemployment benefits or whether you're going to get some relief for COVID, that is determined by elected officials. And how do elected officials make those decisions? They get voted in office. And so you have to vote the right people in office right. in order to do that. And then the young people were out there in the streets and they voted in record numbers this time. They were protesting about police reform. They were saying defund the police, but you know, maybe they didn't mean defund the police. Maybe they meant looking at police, policing from a different perspective, giving them resources uh, to really do safety not criminalize people so much. So it those confluence of uh, issues and things that happened really made uh, our election process turn out. We had record turnout uh, in 2020 and 2021. So it, it, it paid off for us. What can I say? Two US senators were elected that changed history for the US. Right. Not just uh, Georgia. Yeah, no, uh, Georgia was a state we were all looking at in the election. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> I have several organizing, you know, friends and buddies who I've worked with in the past. They went to Georgia to knock doors. You know, I unfortunately um, didn't have that luxury. <laughs> but um, no, Georgia was was critical to to where we are now. Um, so thank you again for your efforts. Like I said at the beginning of this video, it would take too long for me to like conscribe, you know, each and every effort you've done um, and, yes. and reward or mass. So thank you um, again. Um, so moving on to my next question, it's fairly simple. And it's one I like to ask all the interviewees, which is how important is voting? Um, and, you know, some folks take a long time to answer this question. So, you know, hit me with your best shot. Because I want the viewers to understand the significance, the power of voting. Well, I don't know anything that is more critical than the vote. And with the suppression laws that have been placed, the barriers right. uh, that have been put in place to stop people from voting, that tells you the vote is important, right? The vote is critical. If you don't, it's really your power. I mean, your power to change the outcome and the destiny of your communities. Municipal elections are coming up, right? The mayor and the city council determines what whether your streets get paid, what, what kind of sanitation uh, pickups you get, right? They also hire the police chief, right? And so it's, it's really critical that that vote is so powerful because it changes, can change everything for your life. Just look at what it did for the U.S. with just electing two U.S. senators, right? Right. We were able to get the kind of relief plans uh, for COVID, right? Before then, oh, COVID's going to go away. It's going to go away in June. It's going to go away. 
it doesn't matter. It's, it, it still it hasn't gone away, actually. Right, and, and yeah. it's still here, right? Yeah. <laughs> but pushing people to get the vaccination so that you are not uh, unemployed, right? Making sure you have a rescue plan where you can get unemployment benefits so you can get uh, rental assistance or housing assistance uh, in the pandemic. It's those kinds of things that uh, elected officials are responsible for that you got to have the right ones that will do that for you right now. The infrastructure plan that we're trying to get right now, right. how important is an elected official? They're critical to that because whether we can get our bridges repaired will be determined by these elected officials. And we just saw a bridge just collapse not too long ago, right? right. I know in Atlanta, one was caught on fire by an accident and then it had to be rebuilt. So those kinds of things are made, whether those policies get uh, done or whether those services get done is made by a decision of an elected official. So to me, it is critical because it's your power, your power to control who gets to represent you and who gets to make those policies. And when the person doesn't do what they're supposed to do, then you have the power to fire them because elected officials are really our employees. They're our public servants. That's right. Yeah. And, and we tend to think it's the other way around or something, yeah. but they work for us. Yeah. And so I used to be a HR VP of HR. So, you know, when you're in human resources, um, if you try to work with your employees, if they need a little more training, they need a little more development, you try to give them that. Mm -hmm. But if they don't, then you coach them. And it, eventually, if they still don't come around, what you have to do with them? You have to fire them and get you some more. Right. So the same principle applies to our elected officials. And that's why the vote is critical. And I know that's a long answer. No, no, no. It's, it's actually the answer as, as somebody who spent the last three years working in politics, I give to everybody because most folks don't they don't cognizantly realize that when you talk about, you know, defunding the police, when you talk about criminal justice reform, when, when you talk about environmental justice, you know, unfortunately, you know, the federal level, you know, the president of the United States, the vice president, they don't handle that operation. Your local municipalities do. I've ran several city council campaigns. I could tell you for a fact they manage the budget. Um, not only that, the county does in some cases, my county manages billions of dollars, some dedicated, you know, a large portion dedicated to the sheriff's office. Um, right. The sheriff is an elected member of our community. Right. You can hold him accountable. Um, the DA has so much more influence exactly. than anybody can understand. You know, they have the power to really change things. This is why I'm on a district attorney's campaign. Check out my channel if you want to see the candidates I'm supporting. But the point is, local politics it, it touches you you know it's like touching you physically and and, and figuratively 
um, you know, federal, you know, likes to amplify all the issues and connect people together. But the reality of it is voting, you know, even, even if you're disillusioned, even if you recognize it's hyperpolarized, maybe my vote doesn't count. Voting at the local level is the single most important act of service you could perform for a community. And I try to explain that in the best possible way. And I, I, I see that, you know, you've been doing this for so much longer. You probably got it now, you know, and it took me years to understand that. But you, but you got it because look at what the one instance you talk about, just the district attorney. Just the if district. you know, Ahmaud Aubrey was killed in Brunswick, Georgia, right? Just right. casually jogging through his neighborhood to be healthy, right? Right. Uh, and of course, the DA didn't want to prosecute it. But guess what? The people in Brunswick said no more. In 2020, they said, we're going to get rid of that DA. And they got another DA that actually would prosecute. So it's, it's that kind of involvement that people have to understand the connection with. Now, let's talk about Georgia. Um, you know, your home state, you're born there. Um, and you do obviously do a lot of organizing there. Kind of take me through the, you know, we hear it on this side, you know, SB 202 or something, you know, voting rights restrictions, um, limiting the amount of absentee ballots, the access um, to ballots, even poll workers, you know, who are supposed to be nonpartisan getting punished for volunteering their time. Um, tell me why this is happening. Um, and, and, you know, give it to me straight. What can we do to assist um, and, and reform, because it's obviously a reaction to the 2020 elections. And you hit the nail on the head. It was just a reaction of some people who didn't like the outcome of an election. And they want to change democracy. They want to change uh, democratic processes here in the United States. Uh, SB 202, the most egregious part, I know we talk about not being able to give water to people in line, standing in line. Uh, we talk about the reduction in the absentee ballot days, uh, how you have to provide an ID for uh, to, to even apply for an absentee ballot. And some people in rural Georgia don't have internet capability. So how are they gonna do it? The Secretary of State just promulgated a new form for absentee ballot that says you can email it and upload it. Okay, if I don't have internet, how can I upload it and email it to the office? So that leaves me only with uh, mail and then mail is unreliable. People in rural Georgia, uh, Savannah's mail goes to Florida and then comes back to Georgia. So, you know, wow. I, it's those kinds of things, but the most egregious part of SB 202 is the takeover process. And, and most people don't get that, that takeover process. But if I don't like the way a certain county has been voting, and I can find a, a er an error and everybody makes an error. I don't care which county you are. No county is perfect, okay? Yeah. Um, you'll find some problem that you can say is a problem. But it's not 
fraud or anything like that because we didn't find any fraud. The number, we had two audits and one recount. So three times it was hand counted ballots, all of them. And the number came up just about the same. And so the part where the state legislature and the state election board can take over a county's election process, move, remove the board, remove the supervisor and appoint some person who's never done this stuff mm -hmm. to administer elections. Right. So people and, don't- And hmm. just to clarify, I think that happened to you, correct? I, I had watched correct. I watched a clip of you and I believe a colleague of yours who was a Republican who denounced the Trump administration um, and you were removed from the county board of elections. Um, correct. If you want to talk about that. Correct. I mean, but I don't want it to be about me. I want people <laughs> to understand the process. Okay. Right. We were responsible for implementing the laws for elections. We determined where the polling locations would be. We determined if we could do additional hours. We determined which absentee ballots didn't get rejected. We determined which provisional ballots got counted. Uh, we certified the election, right? right? So if you have someone from the outside come in and take over, who's never done this and who so happens to be and uh, someone with the crazy thought process like, you know, it was fraud, so I'm not gonna certify the election. I'm gonna just do this other thing that somebody else is telling me to do. Is that fair to all the voters who exercise their right to vote? No, it isn't, but that's what they're doing. And there are two processes to take over the board. One was SB 202, which this is my assessment. SB 202, which was the Jim Crow 2.0, takes over the large boards, large county boards of election like Fulton, like DeKalb, like Gwinnett, like Cobb. So SB 202 says only four boards can be taken over at any one time, okay? So if I can take over those four and those are, are certain, and I'll just be honest, Democratic performing counties, okay? And I take over that and make it harder I decide whether I'm going to accept the results. I may change the results. Wow. I may not let certain people's votes be counted. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that can change the outcome of any election. So SB 202 does that for the large counties. For the smaller counties, like my county, they use what you call local legislation. That means my state representative and my state senator got together, introduced a law to reconstitute the board because I didn't like the way that board uh, performed. Right. The one I was on, and I've been on it for 10 years plus, right. and we never had a violation of the state 
uh, never been brought before the state election board for a violation of any of the laws. So we must have been doing something right as a board, right? Right. But yet they wanted to remove us and have a county commission, which is predominantly Republican, remove us. And even though the process before had been bipartisan, in other words, the Republicans had two, the Democrats had two, and the county had one to make it an odd number as Robert's rules say, you gotta have odd number, right? Correct. So we followed all the rules. We worked together, to, as I said, to certify the elections, do everything we were supposed to do, but yet the county didn't want to remove us. And, and there was really no reason, and they gave no reason. Uh, other than to say we were dysfunctional. And I'm going like, what do you mean we're dysfunctional? Right. When we certified every election, we never had a violation. Right. We never had a complaint before the state election board. So what does that mean? <laughs> right. You know, so it was just trumped up and there are 10 other counties that were impacted the same way. So that's a way that 10 counties plus four, that's 14 counties out of 159. And I know if they take over Fulton County, which is the largest demographic for full, uh, Democratic voters, just think how you can change the outcome. Right, yeah. Well, that's tough. <laughs> um... I'm sorry that you lost your- We need help from you all. I mean, you can help us put pressure on Congress to yeah. pass S1, HR4, DC statehood, gives us two additional senators. Um, you know, we've got to have the Voting Rights Act pre-clearance put back in place because redistricting is coming up, right? Yeah. And that means our majority, a Republican legislature can now draw the lines any way they want to draw. They can pack us all in one district and not give us representation that we desire or want. And so it's that kind of thing that people have to understand what's at stake. And that's the sense of urgency for Congress to act at this point. Yeah, no. If you happen to know any of them, I'd be more than happy to bring them on the show and, and teach them a valuable lesson about voting and gerrymandering. Um, but, but thank you so much. Um, I guess in closing, I, I always ask, you know, our generation, my generation is called Gen Z. Um, still don't know where they got Z from. Uh, what would be your advice to us you know, how do we impact voting, elections, the policies we care about, staying engaged? What do we do? You know, we're the next class of, you know, graduating voters. We're the next class of people who are going to inherit all the problems created in the past. What do we do? The first thing you got to do is be engaged at every level. Uh, you all have really showed up in the 2021 election in Georgia, I know and in 2020 as well. Um, you, you saw what criminal justice does, how it can be reformed, but you know that the way to get that done is through 
elected officials, run for office. We need you to run for office. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Do I have your endorsement? You can, that's that's um you can be the difference. Yeah. If you look at the 1965 Voting Rights Act, Dr. King was 38 years old. I, I know that's a millennial probably. Right. But but again, think about how young they were. John Lewis was younger than that when he started with SNCC. Okay. Bob Moses was young. Exactly. Exactly. And those were all great people that worked in the civil rights movement to get the 1965 Voting Rights Act passed. And today is the anniversary of that when Johnson signed that into law. And I came to Washington, D.C. in 2006 to witness George Bush sign the last reauthorization of that act. So, but to me, you young people, you can do it now. You're doing it now. Just get more of you engaged in that process and just take your place. No one has to hand it to you. Just take it. Uh, listen and counsel with the older people, but you all know a lot of things that you can teach us. I mean, you have a different way of communicating than we ever did. Dr. King would be amazed at how you all communicate on the internet using all those tools. Just think they had a copier maybe right. <laughs> to do their work, you know? Uh, some said a mimeograph, and I don't think you even know what that is. I mean, I could assume. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, message message well received. Um, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, just put your foot in the door and keep walking, I guess. Um, yeah. You all are brilliant, and, and, and I, I have faith in you that you're going to make it right. Well, yeah, I'm glad you have faith in just me because I will make it right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, everything, immigration, no matter what we try to do, everything is connected. So, you know, we've got to really, you all just have to get on it. That's, that, that's what I say. Just be more on it. Right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, how can viewers stay updated on your platform, what you do? day in and day out, uh, unless they're catching you on CNN. Um, how, how can people stay updated on what you do? Well, you could, of course, go to the peoplesagenda.org. www.peoplesagenda.org is our website. And we meet every Tuesday from 12 to 2 and join our list. And we'll update you for those meetings. Uh, we have weekly empowerment meetings from across the state, and they've really much better than when we were in person because doing it by Zoom, we've reaching so many other people across the state that can come in, not necessarily in person, but be there with us. Um, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, TikTok. We have the Black Youth Vote uh, for the young people 18 to 35 that want to work and give us strategies, not that we're gonna give you strategies, but give us strategies that we can employ uh, to be the change in our communities. 
our Black Youth Vote uh, director is Mary Pat Hector. She's one of the young, she's been an activist since she's 10 years old. Wow. Um, she ran for office at 19 wow. for a city council position lost only by 200 votes. Wow. That was 200 young people on her block that probably could have voted for her. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's that critical, but she hasn't given up. She's going to law school now. So we need young people to help guide us and to help us make the plan for your future, because I've had my future. It's your future that we're working for. Right. Yeah. And we appreciate that. Um, like I said, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're more than welcome to come back anytime you want to talk um, about the people's agenda um, and any other initiative that y'all undertake. Um, we do appreciate your insight, your time. Um, we know you're a busy person, so thank you. Well, thank you for having me, Canal. I really appreciate it, and I love talking to you. Of course. Anytime. Thank you so much, Ellen. Thanks. Peace out.